just after the height of the pandemic, I got really interested in studying the medical profession. Not enough to be useful in any way. Um, not enough to even like think about changing my line of work. Pretty much just interested enough to make really depressing dinner conversation. Um, I, I was uh, doing what most people do when they want to become medical experts. I, tur- I turned to Google. I went to some medical school websites. Um, I watched Grey's Anatomy. And, and from all these scholarly sources, um, I came away with, um, with, with a pretty common theme. So this is, I'm ready today to make my debut contribution to the field of medical research. And here it is. Here's, here's my thesis. The medical profession is complicated um, because the human body is weird. There, there are so many different interconnected skills that people need, not just even to be like a great doctor, but just to be passable enough that you don't get sued out of business. There's so many different skills. But on every website I went, every podcast I listened to, there was a common theme. One of all the skill sets needed to be just a capable doctor, one of the trickiest and yet one of the most crucial is getting the right diagnosis reading symptoms and trying to piece those symptoms together into some sort of narrative that gives you a picture of what's actually going on inside of their bodies. And so I asked just this week a few doctors what for them was the trickiest part of of diagnosing. Here's what they said. One said, it's so easy to not listen well and to have a preconceived diagnosis that leads you down the wrong path. That same one later in her text said, sometimes the hardest thing is that our humanity kicks in. We can be too tired. We can be too distracted. We can be concerned about something else, either another patient or someone in our life and not present to the situation. Another doctor said, the hardest thing for me is that sometimes a disease doesn't look like I expect it to. Early on, if someone didn't lose taste or smell, I was less likely to diagnose them with COVID. If someone doesn't have a chronic cough, I'm tempted to misdiagnose respiratory disease. Sometimes I'm so attached to what a picture of sickness looks like that I miss the symptoms that demonstrate how someone is already subtly sick. I can be so attached to what symptoms someone should be demonstrating that I miss the subtler ways that people are already sick. That doctor meant it about um, disease. But I think the same thing could be said of pride. I've had a picture in my mind um, of prideful people for a number of years. And so do you, because you've worked with at least one of them. If they're in the room, don't look. Um, These are people who talk about their accomplishments all the time. These are people who take credit for more than their share of work. These are people who publicly shut down pushback to any of their ideas. In every conversation, these are the people who make sure somehow to turn the topic of conversation back to themselves. The most obvious picture that all of us have in our mind of pride is really just swagger and over-the-top public display of self-absorption. And I love this definition of pride because I'm not convicted by it. Um, I, I hope I don't try to turn conversations back to myself. I hopefully don't try to take credit for work that's not mine. I don't try at least to publicly shut down people with opposition to my ideas. As one of my friends said this week, I try generally to be a humble person. In fact, that's what I'm most proud of. Um, 
We're talking about humility this morning. And the opposite of humility may be pride, but the challenge in diagnosing pride is that pride takes on about as many forms as there are people. So when pride doesn't take on the obvious symptoms that you and I tend to look for, we can be quietly infected without ever noticing. We're not swaggering about. We didn't put on our list of 2023 goals to become arrogant fill-in-the-blanks. It's just that over time, pride grew undetected until it hardened us against the humility that we would actually need if we were ever going to change. And so as I read Paul speaking to the church in Philippi about humility, I think what I've seen over the past few weeks is a doctor that's delivering a prescription to a patient that he knew a lot about. And so I wondered, what's the diagnosis really that Paul is actually giving the church in Philippi? What is the problem that Paul is solving in his letter that may be present to the disciples of Jesus Christ in Marion, Indiana? Paul has been in Philippi before. He's faced opposition by authorities. And if you read through the book of Acts, you can see that Paul was put in prison and his presence in prison actually ended up converting the jailer. So the relationship between Paul and the church in Philippi is really warm. It's a lot like many of the relationships between a pastor and their first congregation. And Paul is writing partially because things are going very right in Philippi. They have kept up a warm relationship with him. They keep supporting him financially and through prayer. And so he's writing to thank them for contributing to his ongoing missionary journeys elsewhere. So there's a lot going right. They're generous. There's a warm relationship. And yet if you read through the text, you also see that there's a fair number of things that are also going wrong. Conflicts in the congregation are taking place. We see one specific mention in Philippians chapter four, but we also get little snippets, little seasonings throughout the letter that there are some relational problems between people that are in the church in Philippi. But underneath of these conflicts, the church in Philippi is really grappling with their values. They've been brought up from a young age to have the values of the empire. And so they internalize from, um, from a young age the need to hustle, the need to be competitive, the need to find benefactors that can help them achieve and attain a certain level of success and platform and publicity. Roman citizens are taught that all religious practice ultimately is secondary to their allegiance to Caesar. And so Paul is writing a letter here to people who are used primarily to thinking about their lives in terms of honoring their nation and accumulating influence and who are left to wonder, what does it mean to accept the lordship of Jesus while we juggle these other identities? What habits, really, do we need to take up in order to bear the family name of Jesus Christ? What habits do we currently have that if we're honest, will prevent us from living into that family name in a way that brings God glory. And Paul seems to say your main barrier to the Christ-shaped life is specific forms of pride that subtle though they are, prevent you from walking in the way of Jesus. And so I started to just dig around Paul's letters a little bit, and especially to his letter to the Philippians, to see if I could identify some specific symptoms of pride that Paul is dealing with and addressing in his letter. And I came to find that the symptoms of pride, the opposite of humility, in other words, is actually a lot more specific than you and I would look for in swagger. (laughs) The opposite of humility is first, self-interest. What I mean by self-interest is being concerned about winning in a way that Jesus never was. 
I've been working in this church um, for, for a good number of years now and did a lot of my early work in this church with young adults. Many of the young adults I started with are no longer young. They're just adults, even if we're struggling to accept it. Um, and over the years, I've seen young adults hit certain milestones, whether it's graduation from high school, graduation from trade school, graduation from college. And they start to grapple questions that as I've worked with older adults, all of, all of us across the range have seen that are actually present in all of our lives to greater or lesser degrees in moments of transition. When young adults go into adulthood, they start to think about sometimes for the first time, um, am I gonna have enough now that I'm doing this on my own? They start to think, will I make a difference? Like actually, they start to wonder, is anybody gonna see me as important? Do the things that keep me awake at night in my life uh, keep anybody else awake at night? Is anybody else looking after the things in my life that are important to me? And I started to notice how often young adults and then all of us adults who asked those questions over time decided that the best way to defend against those kind of specific anxieties was to insulate themselves into a self-sufficient life. And so they only said yes to things that would advance their careers. They chased public recognition, not just doing good work, but being seen as doing good work, whether they actually did or not. They approached religious life as an option on the buffet of self-improvement. They slowly insulated themselves from anyone in their life that couldn't do anything to help them and focused all their energy on making sure they have enough. They baptized their anxiety and called it ambition. And over time, they drove toward accumulating more but not giving because giving feels too much like losing. I talked with one young adult this week who's about a decade into the workforce, and he said, I went into my adult life knowing the importance of finding a way to make other people's lives better. But if I'm honest, I've mostly said yes to things that advance my own cause and no to anything inconvenient that helps others. It's not that I don't want to help. It's just that my life doesn't take me toward places where I'm serving others. Church, I worry sometimes um, about my life and about our life, um, about the gap between our intentions and our habits. I worry that sometimes you and I, as we plan our calendar, have a vague intention somewhere out in the you know nether regions to help other people. But our life just, in his words, don't put us in places where we're forced to serve someone who can't pay us back. So if I was partnering with Paul and asking a diagnostic question for this and diagnosing the symptoms, I think I'd asked, when in your schedule do you sacrifice for someone else's benefit? When in your schedule do you sacrifice for someone else's benefit? The second symptom of pride, the opposite of humility, is insistence on our own way. Um, often when we go through our life, we're pretty convinced that we'd be happiest if we just got what we wanted. You know, uh, this, this is kind of the root at a lot of our domains of life dissatisfaction. So we complain about the way that our organizations are run. We complain about the way that people in our life behave. We get tense and angry with our children. We have conflict with people closest to us. And the subtext of a lot of these conflicts is if people would just come around to doing things my way, the world would be a better place. And some of us are even right. 
but the problem is that we're con- when we're convinced of the rightness of our own way, we just have so much trouble receiving correction. When people, even people who we love and who we know sincerely love us, gently confront us about our unproductive ways of relating to other people, we turn to defensiveness and avoidance and absence and eventually resentment. And we banish people from our lives instead of reconciling with them because we think, how dare they be so wrong about me? (laughs) One of the biggest barriers to humility is our belief that ultimately we can actually even without God, run our lives pretty well. One of my friends who went through recovery said one of the hardest things about getting the support that I needed to stop drinking was admitting that I needed help in the first place. I was so invested in thinking that I could manage my life, that I could control my future, that I could get free of addiction, that I didn't ever want to admit that my way was working. Church, maybe it's a good time to just like pause the sermon Um, and say that if we want our way, we'll get it. But we can't pretend that it's Jesus' way. If we want to protect our reputation over our character, we can do it. If we want to hide habits of sin instead of confessing them to someone who can help, we can do that for a time. If we want to protect our our own sense of rightness over the chance to make amends with other people, we can do that. If we want to love our religious convictions, which Jesus didn't call us to love, over our neighbors, which Jesus called us to love, we can do it. But our lives will grow smaller. Our friendships will be shorter. The people closest to us will suffer and will have so few chances to learn because one of the key parts of learning is admitting that you don't know it already. You can have it your way, but if you insist on your way, you won't be walking Jesus' way. This symptom is tricky enough that it requires two questions. Um, One is, how often in your life do you use the words, I'm sorry, or I was wrong? The second is, um, when's the last time you changed your mind against, uh, about something significant? The third symptom of, of pride, the opposite of humility, is closedness. It's a sad fact of our lives that a lot of us banish some of our best teachers from our life. Some of that's um, some of that's because of our pace. You know, I don't know very many people who are like, I have all the time to do everything that I need, and I have a lot extra left over. If you're here, raise your hand. We have great service opportunities here at College Church. Love to enlist you. Um, but I don't know a lot of people who do that. I know a lot of us, because of our pace, rush by people that God has called us to love every day. There are people who, if we paid attention to them, would add depth and texture and richness to our life, but that our pace makes us zip right by because we just can't afford to pay attention to them. doesn't mean we're evil. We're just in a hurry. Some of us... Um, miss people, on, uh, some of our best teachers miss people in our life because uh, of proximity, whether because of our career or our privilege or our income or our neighborhood, there are whole swaths of people that God loves and we would be wise to know who we don't have in our lives yet because our life doesn't bring us to the places that they're in. 
But sadly enough, beyond pace, beyond proximity, many of us miss out on the best teachers that God would send us because we've just decided there are certain people that we will not learn from. There are people who disagree with our theology. There are people who hold different political convictions. There are people we'd have a dis- we've had a disagreement with in the past. People who are lacking a personality type that we find pleasant to be around. Whoever it is, there are people in our lives who whether we decided in a moment or decided slowly over time, we've decided we will not learn from because we've made them non-essential to our vision of a complete life. Paul says, you're all members of one body. Can the hand say to the, can the eye say to the hand, I don't need you? Can the head say to the feet, I don't need you? And there have been moments in my life where I've, I've read that passage and said, I don't know, but I'm sure going to try. Not because we mean to be prideful, not because we intend to develop swagger, but we march on in the name of Jesus, even as we close ourselves off from learning from the very people that God sent us to pay attention to. And in the process, we miss out on learning something about God that we can only see from their way of bearing his image. If I was gonna diagnose this symptom, I think I'd ask the question, um, who am I unwilling to learn from? Who, if they did anything good or said anything insightful, would surprise you by doing so? Be specific. If you were to put pride in street clothes, these three habits, self-interest, insistence on our own way, and closeness are pretty descriptive symptoms. And so I read through Philippians wondering uh, if the diagnosis under all these things is pride, then what's the, like, what's the prescription? Like, what's the treatment? And I'm pretty confident that if you or I were writing scripture, we would have written a strongly worded letter to the manager of the Philippian church and put them right. And so I sort of scanned through the book of Philippians. It's very short. Over and over again, looking for like, when is Paul gonna bring down the hammer on these folks? And he didn't. Paul says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And the same mindset as Christ Jesus means that we'd have to move from self-interest to service. And your relationships with one another, Paul writes, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. I've read this passage for years, and every time I've read it, I've read it like this. Um, Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who even though he was God, who despite the fact that he was God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead took on the very nature of a servant. One commentator I read this week said, if we were to reword our translation to be more correct, it would say, Jesus, precisely because he was God, took on the nature of a servant. It is always and forever the nature of God to serve. 
You and I mostly talk about the gospel as if it's about Jesus dying and rising again. And hear me, the gospel is very much about Jesus dying and rising again. But I read through the gospels and I'm like, well, then what was Jesus preaching when it says he preached the gospel? He didn't die yet. So what was that about? And so here's the gospel according to Jesus. God has come near. I am making all things new. Come and follow me into recreation. Don't be afraid. Jesus reminds us over and over and over through the sermons that he preaches, through the lives that he lived, life that he lived, that the only way to be like God is to take on the posture and the habits of a servant. It's the mentors who give up their lunch break in Marion to take interest in learning from and listening to students at Francis Slocum. It's the teachers in children's ministry who help children go home knowing scripture and just as important, knowing that God loves them. It's the ESL teachers who meet in this building two nights a week to help others learn English and find a home in Grant County when they're displaced from somewhere else. It's the couple who sense God calling them to make their next move overseas so they can serve as bivocational missionaries. It's the middle-aged couple I know who gave up their dream of buying a bigger house before retirement to buy a bigger car so that they could fit their neighbors as they bring them to church and their doctor's appointments. The way that the Spirit of God breaks us of our addiction to our own self-importance is by pressing us to give our lives away. The second movement is from insistent on our own way to curious. Um, in humility, Paul writes, consider others better than yourself. And if I can pause the sermon and have a moment of confession, I'll admit to you that when I think about um, descriptive words for the character and the attitudes and the dispositions of Jesus, I tend to think of Jesus as very kind. I tend to think of Jesus as very spiritual, but smart is not one of the top five words that comes to mind when I think about Jesus. It's not that I think that Jesus is dumb. It's just that it's not the most important thing in my mind when I think about Jesus. And so I've read through this passage, assuming that we should take on the posture of a servant because that would, and consider others better than ourselves because that would be the spiritual thing to do. The problem is that Jesus isn't just kind and Jesus isn't just spiritual. Jesus is actually right. So maybe... When there's an invitation to consider others better than ourselves, it's not just because it's the kind thing to do. It's not just because it's the spiritual thing to do. It's because Jesus is inviting us to take on a habit that brings us closer in touch with the truth. Sometimes, by which I mean often, people will be better than me. You knew that already. Occasionally, by which I mean often, the best thing that you can give to another person that you're meeting with in a room is not your flash and spark of insight, but genuine concern to and attention for what's inside of the other person that's sitting across from you. Jesus preached several sermons sharing insight during his lifetime, some of which we even have in the Bible. But Jesus asked over 300 questions during his life, and those are only the ones that we know about. Wouldn't it be amazing if the people of God were known as the ones who more than anything else were genuinely curious about the people that God's put us around? Wouldn't it be amazing if Christians like Jesus were known before we were known for our convictions as important as they are, were known to be people who asked thoughtful questions that really got to the heart of the matter? I think in the process, we would actually learn how big is the gap between God's way and our way. I think maybe if we got curious, 
God could give us the gift of enough self-suspicion to be moldable and just enough confidence to be obedient. Thanks be to God. The third move is from closed um, to open. Ultimately, humility is just another word for being in love with the truth and convinced that the truth can actually come from unlikely places. Jesus, it seems, never considered above, uh, considered himself above entering into another person's experience. The text says, and being found in appearance as a human being, Jesus humbled himself. And if you trace your way through the scriptures um, to find Jesus's social calendar, you find that his social uh, circles were dizzyingly broad. Uh, Jesus was comfortable learning in the temple, having conversations with Samaritans, teaching in the synagogue, healing people, society never even wanted to touch. And I'm realizing over and over as I read through the life of Jesus, how open a life you have to have in order to have that much range. Every moment of Jesus's life was good news for us to live into, but maybe one of the best things that Jesus continues by the Holy Spirit to give to the church is a table big enough for people that we're not yet good at loving. There are gonna be people in heaven who voted differently than you. There are going to be people in heaven that you currently resent so deeply you can barely bring yourself to make eye contact with them. There are going to be people in heaven that you have biases against. It would be a good idea to start practicing learning the kind of love that Jesus has for those people. Because Jesus is unwilling to accept bias or resentment or misunderstanding or even pain as an excuse to not draw near in love. I've wondered what might happen if we refuse to see those as excuses too. That might mean making amends uh, with people that you currently have broken relationships with and you're not quite sure how to reach out to engage them. That That might mean just starting somehow. That might mean strategically addressing a bias that you know that you have or that somebody close to you knows that you have that prevents you from loving somebody that's different from you. I met um, one couple in another state not too long ago who was just describing to me how much difficulty they were having in loving young adults in their church. Just, just struggling. And they allowed, they, they gave me permission to share this story because I emailed them lately, checking in on how they were doing um, with some of the tension they were feeling when they entered into their congregation. And here's what, here's what he said. He emailed me back. He said, we were pretty convinced that young people were ruining the church. We thought they were too loud. We thought they were too disrespectful. And frankly, we wouldn't say it out loud, but we thought they were too liberal. And I was very content in my judgment until we had dinner with a few of these disrespectful young adults in our church and found that instead of being too loud, instead of being too disrespectful, instead of being too liberal, they were some of our very best witnesses to the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Sometimes he said, the hardest thing about opening up your life is setting down your judgments so that you can grow. 
sometimes the hardest thing about opening up your life is setting down your judgments so that you can grow. Church, I wonder how big our lives would be if we welcomed at our tables some of the people that the Lord welcomes at his table, not just in the abstract, not just in our hearts, but in our budget, in our calendar, and in our house. I wonder how different our lives might be if we surrendered to the Spirit and said, where there are habits of self-interest, create in me a heart that longs to serve. Where I'm set in my own way, keep me curious about where I'm wrong and who might teach me that. Where I'm close to the people that you want me to learn from, open my table. Open my calendar. Open up space so that I can receive the people that you would call me to submit to.